Okay, so we've been going through the book of Revelation together. We're in week eight. Uh, we've been looking at these seven churches, and you can think of these as seven types of church, or really almost seven types of temptations for the, for the ne- if you look, want to look at it negatively, right? Which is seven different ways to fail as a church, with two exceptions. Two, two of the churches, Jesus had nothing but good things to say. Um, there's a couple others that Jesus had nothing good to say about. And these this morning is kind of an example of both. Okay, we're looking at Philadelphia and Laodicea. We're going to do two this morning together and finish out this section in Revelation. Philadelphia, this is not Philadelphia, USA. Okay, this is different Philadelphia. This is where Philadelphia got its name, okay? It was a good choice on Philadelphia's part because Jesus is really happy with Philadelphia, all right? So let's start Revelation 3, just verse 7, because I've got some explaining to do, okay? So Revelation 3, verse 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, so he's saying, John, who he's giving this vision to, he's saying, write this down and give it to the church in Philadelphia. Quote, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What is he talking about? This is Jesus identifying himself as the speaker, and the one who has the authority. The authority, the authority. These words come with the authority of this guy. Okay, What does he mean, the true one who has the key of David? That's a reference to Isaiah. Okay, So we're going to look at that verse to understand what he means by this. Okay? Isaiah 22, 20 through 22. Lots of twos. Isaiah chapter 22, 20 to 22. Here's what it says. He's, he's talking about Eliakim, who was about to be the new king of Israel. Okay? And Isaiah is going to prophesy about him. He says, In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. So he says about the coming king, Eliakim, I'm going to give him the authority to decide who gets to come into the city and who doesn't, who belongs in his kingdom and who doesn't. That's a picture of like you open the door, you let somebody in, and then you close the door and exclude others, right? It's ultimate authority. Like think about, think about your own house. The fact that... The, the owner of that house gets to decide who gets to be in that house. And you make that decision by opening or closing the door, right? If the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, you decide, right? I might open the door, hit them with some truth, and then close the door. I might just leave the door closed, right? If the Spectrum TV guy who's constantly coming to my house, Spectrum and AT&T, I don't know what the deal is, they have released a horde of door-to-door lackeys knock on your door and super excited and energetic was not the kind of thing I, I would rather you be calm but they're like hey man and they do the sideways handshake and now you're stuck right you're the one that opened the door you made that decision you have the authority to let people in and let people out the same thing with the king he gets to make that decision who's in and who's out Jesus in Revelation 3 is saying that 
prophecy about Eliakim is a picture or a foreshadowing, a prophecy about me. Eliakim was a foreshadowing of Christ. But Jesus has even more authority. It's not just a physical city. It's the kingdom of God. Jesus is the one who decides. He opens the door or he closes the door. You don't have that power. I don't have that power. I don't get to go, you know what, I'm going to choose because I have done my research and decided that I approve of God and I will be in, I'll allow him to let me into his kingdom. That's a very human way of thinking. I will put God on trial and when I decide that he matches my sense of justice and what truth is, he matches my truth. All those kind, then I'll agree and I'll believe. That's not how this works. Jesus is the one who holds the key. He's the one that opens the door or closes the door, okay? This is who is talking to John and talking to us, all right? Now that we understand that, let's keep going because it gets even cooler, all right? Verse 8, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut, I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Little power just means little. This is a small church, okay? This is not a big, powerful church. They don't have a lot going for them. Not a lot of good-looking people. Not a lot of influence. Not a lot of money. Not a lot of ability. Maybe not even a lot of gifting, Right? Starting to feel sort of familiar. <laughs> That's not an insult, right? This is a little, scrappy little church. Despite their small size, Christ the King has put before them a permanently open door to the kingdom of God that only he can shut. They can't even shut it. They didn't open it, and they can't shut it because he is the one who holds that authority, not this church. They may have little to no earthly resources or abilities, but the one who has all the resources and all the abilities on earth and in heaven has given them access to all that he has in the new heavenly Jerusalem to come. That's an amazing thing. Because Jesus is not saying this based on their potential. I'll say this to you all the time. You are not a Christian because Jesus looked ahead at your future and said, wow, that Alan Austin, one day he's going to get it together. <laughs> and when he does, boy, it's going to be amazing. So I'm going to save him because I could use a guy like him. That's not what he did. He looked at Alan and said, wow, that Alan Austin, better get down there quick. <laughs> right? That's what he did. And every one of you is the same, no matter how gifted or amazing you may think you are or are not. You are, and he did not rescue you or die for you based on your amazing potential. You have little power. You have nothing going for you but him. That's the truth. And what he says to you is, hey, tell you what, I put an open door in front of you. You can't shut it. Nobody can shut it but me. And I'm letting you in to come 
partake in and share in all the stuff, all the authority, all that power, all those spiritual riches that I have. You get to come and hang and be with me. And there's nothing you can do to make that door close. It's a picture of grace. Let's look at verse 9 through 13. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. We've seen that phrase before, but if you missed it several, several, I guess probably six weeks ago, he's talking about these local synagogues that had at this point begun to not just expel the Christians out of them, but also to betray them and turn them into the Roman authorities because they weren't worshiping Caesar. And they were, there's some historical documents that indicate that they were afraid that their association with Christians would get them in trouble. So they're not just saying, hey, you can't come to synagogue anymore. They were also saying, hey, Rome, this guy, my neighbor over here is following Jesus and not worshiping Caesar. He's not loyal. And that would get them thrown in prison or killed. Okay? So when Jesus refers to those synagogues, he does, they, they were saying, we're the righteous ones. We're the synagogue of God. And he's saying, no, you're not. You're the synagogue of Satan. Okay? He's calling it like it is. So that's what that means. He says, behold, I, make those of the, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear that the Spirit, what the Spirit says to the churches. So let's just work through this. Verse 9 shows us that there, those that are persecuting the church will one day bow at the feet of those they persecuted. And what Jesus will say is, I love that one. You didn't just persecute a person, you persecuted me because I love them. Don't you feel this way about people you love? You take it personally when someone attacks them. Anybody that you love, that's how you feel. You take it personally and rightly so because it's an expression of your love that you feel afflicted when they are afflicted. And so Jesus will say about his church, and everyone who's been persecuted across all of time, he will say, I love that one. And what you did to them, you did to me. Verse 10 shows us, it says, uses that phrase, those that dwell on the earth, which is a term you'll see about five or six times throughout Revelation that always refers to unbelievers, okay? Specifically in reference to idol worshiping. He says, God is coming to put them on trial, to judge them. That's what that word means, to test them, to look at the evidence of what they have done and say you're either godly, you're either righteous or unrighteous. Those that are truly his will be spared that trial, that judgment, because their sin has been put on Christ. Not because they're sinless, but because their sin is on Christ. Eduardo said it this morning, you're holy. 
And then verse 12 shows us that the priest and King Jesus will make us a permanent fixture, a pillar. I love that picture, a pillar in the house of God, meaning you're not a chair that can be moved around or a piece of impermanent piece of decoration. You are a pillar in the house. You are necessary and you are permanent. You're not going anywhere. If you take the pillar out, the thing falls down. That's another way of saying nobody can shut the door but me. So this presents very clear dual options. It's binary. God is very binary. You're either this or you're this. There's no like fuzzy in between. It's very frustrating. I love to live in the fuzzy. We'll get to the fuzzy in a minute. Jesus calls that lukewarm. All right? Every human being is headed inexorably towards one of two possible futures. The unbeliever goes to be tried and judged for their sin against a holy and just God, and the believer goes to eternal, permanent position of blessing and acceptance in the family of God through that open door forever to be a pillar, immovable and permanent. The difference is whether or not you have given your allegiance to King Jesus, the one with the key to the house of David, or not. You've got to go to the king and say, will you open the door for me? Can I come into your city? And if he says no and he closes the door, there's no negotiation. If he says yes and opens the door and you come in, there's no negotiating, right? You still can't, there's no leaving. You're in. That's how it is. If you're wondering whether I'm a once saved, always saved, I think you figure that out. So after all of these rebukes and promises we've just read, you might be tempted to think, like I think every human being, Maybe what I could do, because all this persecution stuff sounds pretty lame, pretty hard, pretty sad. I don't want to go through that. I would like option three, which, I, which is I go through the door, but I, I, I kind of put my, give my allegiance to Jesus at the most minimal point to where I'm in, but it doesn't cost me anything. Like, can I just, like, put one foot in the door and one foot over here so that I can sort of exist in this in-between happy place where my neighbors aren't offended and no one is frustrated and Rome doesn't throw me in prison. I don't make too much of a fuss, cause much, too, too much trouble. I don't want to be the tallest blade of grass because those get cut first, right? I'll just be a minimal Christian. We call them now nominal Christians. Can I just do that? Can I just sort of, you know, attend? I hate that word when it's in reference to church. Somebody on Facebook a couple of weeks ago, uh, another pastor said something, asked a question, trying to get some discussion going. Um, Why do you attend church? And lots of comments, interesting comments from the people in the church. Oh, I come because Uh, The worship is great, or I come because this, you know, all the things you can think of why people might go to church. And I'm looking at it, I'm getting, I'm starting to get annoyed because I'm reading these verses and I'm going, ah, doing this. You ever do that? You pass by the same post three or four times, like like you know you're going to say something. You're just telling yourself not. And finally, I just wrote, I don't attend church. I am the church. I've never attended church before. It's just who I am. And then just left it. 
and walked away and didn't reply to any of the replies. But you guys know what I'm talking about. But this is the thing, right? You're not attending anything. This is what you are or it's what you're not. There's no in-between. There's no dialing it up or dialing it back. There's no, I'll I'll commit to a little while or to a little bit. I'll give it a, a one, and one day I'll turn it up to 11 because then I'll kind of understand more and know more and be more comfortable. I'll just ease into it. That's how I like to go swimming in cold water. My family laughs at me as we were just in Rochester this summer at this lake, and I'm like, it's cold. And I go and I step in at the bank up to my ankles, and I slowly shuffle in because I just hate being cold, and I hate being wet. The whole thing I don't like. <laughs> but I'm doing it because, and the kids are just, they just jump in off the dock like cannonball right in. And they're laughing at me, and then Owen or somebody comes over and splashes me, and I, get, I say, stop it, and I get grumpy. They laugh and splash me more. I get more grumpy. They laugh more. They splash me more. And this is how it goes every single time. It's sort of a dance we do. But, you know, this is not how faith works. It's either all in or all out. And if you're trying to ease in, He's not going to let you. It's not, you don't get the choice. The door's open or it's doors or the door is closed. These are the two options. So this brings us to the next church, which is Laodicea. Verse 14. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Again, just another way of describing Jesus. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Laodicea was a rich, prosperous city. And we can assume, based on what he says here to Laodicea the church, they were the same. This was a rich, prosperous church that had lots of money, probably a lot of people, maybe a lot of notoriety in the city. But Jesus says about them, you say you're rich, but I say you are so poor you are to be pitied. What do he mean? He's spiritually poor. The kind of poor that actually matters, right? This church's riches made them easily deceived into thinking they were not in need of Christ. This also sounds like us. As a result, they are attempting to hold on to their worldly treasures while embracing Jesus at the same time, and it isn't working, so they become watered down. Jesus won't let you do that. So you get this kind of lukewarmness. That's that in-between land we try to live in that I was just describing. 
And how does Jesus feel about it? It makes him sick. Think about that for a minute. I don't think we want to be the kind of people that make Jesus want to throw up. That it's so gross. Like think about something you've eaten or drunk before. It went in your mouth and it was so disgusting, you, it, you couldn't swallow it down. Think about it. I've had those moments very few in my life. It has to be really gross, like a piece of chicken that's not fully cooked. And you bite into it, it's got that gross kind of texture, and you kind of look down at what you ate, and you realize it's not cooked. And if you swallow it, it's going to make you sick. And so you're left with one option, which is to spit it out. This is how Jesus feels about lukewarm people. That's kind of scary to me. What's that metaphor represent? Nothing good. (laughs) Nothing good. And these are people walking around the streets of Laodicea feeling really good about their church. God's really blessed us. Look how much we have. Heads held high. Nobody's mad at them. Nobody's persecuting them. Everything's great. Wow, we've really figured out church. We've cracked the code. Look how blessed we are. Meanwhile, Jesus is doing this dry heaving thing over them. And he's disgusted. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a Christian without it costing you something. You cannot worship comfort and material things and God at the same time. There's no such thing as joining up without going all in. The lukewarm Christian is always struggling to find a way to blend in wherever he goes. I don't want to stand out. I don't want to cause trouble. Among Christians, he can use enough Christian lingo to smokescreen most people. You've read enough verses and been around Christians long enough to know the words to say so that people all think you're holy and you got it together. Among non-Christians, he can manage to make everyone think he's cool without everything, with everything, without doing anything too bad. I'm cool, man. Do what you want. I'm cool. You throw out enough, you know, Christian cuss words to make people think you're all right and relatable and authentic. That guy may be a Christian, but he's all right. A lukewarm Christian takes almost no personal responsibility for his relationship with God and instead relies completely on the ministry of others to do it for him. He disguises his tepid faith either with intellectualism, hyper-spirituality, or even legalism. It's amazing how a lukewarm Christian can look really holy. They have no relationship, no actual fervor for Christ in themselves, and they replace that with following the rules. They look really pious. Others replace a lack of actual fervency and faith for God with hyper-fake spirituality. They're hard to spot, but you know when you are one. You know something's wrong. The lukewarm Christian literally makes Jesus sick. 
a scary idea to me. The thing you need to see is it's not up to you. If you say yes to Christ, you say, I'm in. He doesn't think, well, how, he doesn't ask the follow-up question, which is, how in are you? He just takes you at your word, and he says, you're mine. I'm going to do with you what I want. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to make sure you're all in. I'm going to do whatever I have to do because his goal, sanctification, is the word we use. Your growing in maturity in Christ is about owning up to the decision you already made. It's about, I say this all the time, it's about becoming what you already are. Jesus declares over you his own righteousness. He says, you're mine, you are holy. Eduardo is right. You are holy. And you go, but I don't act holy. Well, that's what I mean. You're becoming that. You're becoming what he already says you are. You're living up to what he says you are. And it's not a, you actually are that. It's mysterious. You're like, well, make, it's got to be one or the other. No, it doesn't. God says you are, and then he makes you that. So you say, I'm in. He goes, okay, you're all in then. And I'm going to show you what that means every day for the rest of your life. I'm going to ask more and more and more of you, and you're going to complain, and you go, maybe not. Maybe I can just not do that. And he says, no, not really. My whole life I have felt like those the Western movies where they're bringing cattle in to either brand them or slaughter them, depending on your how negative you want to be with the metaphor, right? <laughs> Let's go with branding. I don't want to scare the kids, all right? And what do they do? They have those shoots, right? We have this big corral, and they bring them out of this big pasture where they can roam wherever they want and eat whatever sweet grass they want. They bring them into the big corral, and they're, still, they're sort of antsy, but they're like, well, okay, this is cool. We've still got some room. And then a horse or a dog comes behind them and begins to drive them towards a chute that's wide and it gets narrower and narrower and narrower until they can only one at a time single file go down the chute and they can't go backwards they can only go forwards they can't turn to the left or right and then they go down and their fate is sealed whatever that fate may be this is what the christian life is like you may think you're making all the right all the choices and you are free to roam wherever you like but you will find yourself exactly where god wanted you to be when he wanted you to be there, no matter what you do. So just don't make it hard on yourself. So this idea of lukewarmness, of like, I can choose that. I can live in a, I just turn it up to one kind of Christianity, where it only costs me a little bit, it'll only cost my time on Sundays, and everything else is just going to be fun for me, and easy, and my choice. It's actually a myth. It does not exist. You're either a Christian and you're all in or you're just not one. Okay? I know that's hard, but it's what Jesus says. It's what you signed up for. That's the way it works. You sign up and then you find out what it means later. <laughs> right? You have no idea what it means until after. And that's the way he works. There's a promise, though. 
You're not just going to get slaughtered in the shoot, right? Revelation 3, 20 to 22. Look what he says. It's amazing. This is very good for us. This is very good for you. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. What? As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That I stand at the door and knock is a reference to imagery from the Song of Solomon. Where a man would get engaged or betrothed to a woman and he would go, she would stay home. They're not married yet, but just engaged. And he would go away and prepare, add a room to his house or maybe build a house if he didn't have one. Make a place. Prepare a place for her. Right? Because you don't just come and get married and then figure that out. You should have that worked out ahead of time. Right, guys? Work those details out. Don't come to me and ask for my daughter's hand in marriage without having some of that worked out. Okay? So they go and they do that. And then when it's all ready, they would come back and they would knock on the door. They kind of knew he was coming. It was this whole kind of show thing. But, and she's all prepared and ready and I don't know what, whatever the girls do, right? And they, he would come and knock on the door and she would go, ah, hey, I'm so surprised, <laughs> right? And they would go and get married and go to the house, okay? This is a picture. It's what Jesus is describing here. This is not Jesus coming and going, knocking on the door of your heart, all timidly, do you mind if I come in? Is it okay? Can I have your permission? No, that's not, that's not what this is saying. This is a husband who is betrothed, meaning he has every right and the permission has already been granted to come to your door and say, let's go. This is a picture of Christ returning for his church. This is the second coming. He's saying, I'm on the way. The husband, the betrothed, is on the way to the church. And he's coming to his bride. You need to be ready to go. I'm not going to stand there and knock quietly. I'm going to do the cop knock. Boom, 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 boom. I'm going to bang on that door because I'm ready and I've returned for my bride. That's you. Can you imagine saying to your, to your when, if you're married and your husband said, will you marry me? I said, yeah. My guess. I mean, I'm not really that into you, but I got nothing else going on. But if someone else comes along, I'll date them a little bit if that's okay with you. That's a no. Be, yeah, that's a no, right? That's not marriage, right? That's something else. You can call that marriage. There's no such thing as an open marriage. There's either marriage or not marriage. And this is what Jesus is talking about. Lukewarm Christians are not a thing. So Jesus says, look, if this is you, just repent and open the door. Just, I mean, there's this tone here. Just repent already. Just repent. 
Let's go. I like you. You like me. Let's get, let's get going. Repent and open the door. Come with me. But where is he taking us? The one who conquers, verse 21, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. It's not about the throne. It's you get to sit with him. Jesus is the prize. You're not marrying Jesus for the mansion. You're marrying Jesus for him. And we get to reign with him sitting on his throne that we do not deserve, that we did not earn, that we have in some sense no place even being in the room. Yet there we are, not just in heaven, but sitting on the throne. Next week we get into this uh, chapter 4 and 5, which is this, the, the most glorious description of heaven and worship you've ever read. I promise, no matter what you've read. It's the most glorious description of worship and the glory of God you've ever seen. And this picture of heaven. And you'll look at it and you see, and, and, and the, there's the Father in the center of it on the throne. You get to sit there is what Jesus is saying. Not only even on the outer ring of worship in heaven, you're there with Christ sitting with him like his kid. That's amazing. That's what's at the end of the shoot. Yeah, you gotta, you got to tr- give your life up, but what's your life worth? Is it really worth all of that? Give all of it up to be able to sit with him, to go through the door and sit on the throne with him, sharing in this absolute authority. It's amazing. We're kind of a big deal. <laughs> so, brings us back to Philadelphia, right? Living Hope Church. I want you to just hear Jesus saying this to you, right? Not me. Jesus himself saying to you, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You may be little, but it's not your power that opens the door, it's Jesus. I have wept over this scripture thinking about the past few weeks, just about when we came here And there's like 20 people on the membership and about 15 who were sometimes showing up on a Sunday. Raise your hand if you were here then. Yeah. Y'all remember that? It's not like we're busting at the seams now. It's not about us. It's about him and his authority. He'll use anybody that just says, yeah, I'm in. I'm all in. I'll hang around this little church even though stuff's going on I don't like. There's people going on I don't like. I don't like the color of the walls. It's crazy, crazy young pastor. 
making stupid decisions. If y'all haven't heard that story, just ask one of them. It didn't always look like this, all right? So if you compare Philadelphia and Laodicea, we have a small, poor church that has been given ultimate authority in Christ. And then we have a rich church that has been spiritually impoverished due to its lukewarm faith. It's an excellent comparison. Jesus calls us to keep our eyes on the prize, which is him. So if you're lukewarm, I would say all of us have a tendency towards lukewarmness. It's not about trying not to be lukewarm. It's about recognizing that you don't have a choice. You're in the chute. You're in the funnel. And all you have to do is look at Jesus, who's the prize, right in front of you. He's it. And recognize that everything else that you want to worship, that you want to chase after out in that field where you wish you had all this freedom, was just death. It's worthless. It's death. It's meaningless. Your hopes and dreams, if they're not in Christ, are useless to you. You come to the place where you realize Jesus can take everything away from me, like Job. Absolutely every single thing that I hold dear. Just give me Christ, and it's all that I need. That's what it's like to be in the shoot. And that's when you're all in. And so if you're not there, I, want to, I don't want to say it's okay, but just bring it to Jesus, right? Bring it to him and confess it. Do what Jesus said to do. Repent. Where is it? Oh, it's here somewhere. Oh, here it is, verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Don't him and haul, just repent. So that's what we're going to do. Why don't we stand up? So the word repent simply means to turn away, go the other way. Oh, that was bad. That was dumb. That's a bad way to go. I don't think I'll go that way. I'll go the other way. It's not necessarily an emotional experience. It'd be nice if it was. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's just, oh, I see that's true, and I'm going to do what God says, okay? And so you confess that to God. God, I recognize I'm lukewarm. I don't want to make you gag. Forgive me. And then we're going to, I'm going to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, it's part of his job, is to come and, and banish that lukewarmness and make you zealous, right? To re, re-motivate you towards Christ on your own. Amen. So let's just pray and do that. So let's start with repentance. God, we, we just come before you now. And first, we just thank you for opening the door we confess our lukewarmness our desire to stay in the middle of the road to be in without accosting to stay out in the open field where we can make our own decisions we confess that as sin We don't like it about ourselves and we ask you by your spirit to come and stir our hearts again towards you. God, we pray for our faith right now. God, you and you alone get to decide what our lives are about. 
Lord, would you direct our dreams? Would you direct our passions? Would you direct our zeal? Would you be Lord over them? Would you be come and be Lord over our future? God, we submit to that. We submit to your will as a church. God, we want to be seated there. Our only desire is to be seated with you on your throne, to just be with you. God, we once again come and give over control to you. How we live, where we live, what we live for, what we work for, what our priorities are, how we work, how we raise our kids, how we treat each other, how we treat ourselves. God, we give it all to you. God, we confess that tomorrow morning we're going to wake up and want to be lukewarm again. We don't want to be that. And so I pray that tomorrow morning you would also be there and the next morning and the next morning and the next morning, stirring us up to love you more and to love each other more. Stir us up to love and good deeds, Lord Jesus. Make us into what you have already made us into. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.